Amen. Please be seated. That's fantastic, guys. Wonderful. Wasn't that great? Amazing. So we've, um, we've got Creekside House Church with us today, and Grayson's going to come and read the scripture for us. It's quite a long one, so please uh, listen carefully. Come and join me up here, brother, in the, come under the spout where the glory comes out. And um, listen, yeah, yeah, no, sorry about that. But um, listen carefully to what the Lord might be saying. All right, this is uh, Acts chapter 13, verse 13. From Paphos, Paul and his companions sailed to Perga and Pamphylia, where John left them to Jerusalem, to return to Jerusalem. From Perga, they went on to Pisidia and Antioch. On the Sabbath, they entered the synagogue and sat down. After the reading from the law and the prophets, the leaders of the synagogue sent word to them, saying, Brothers, if you have a word of exhortation for the people, please speak. Standing up, Paul mentioned with his hand, motioned with his hand and said, Fellow Israelites and you Gentiles who worship God, listen to me. The God of the people of Israel chose our ancestors. He made the people prosper during their stay in Egypt. With mighty power, he led them out of that country. For about 40 years, he endured their conduct in the wilderness. And he overthrew seven nations in Canaan, giving their land to his people as their inheritance. All this took about 450 years. After this, God gave them judges until the time of Samuel, the prophet. Then the people asked for a king, so he gave them Saul, son of Kish, of the tribe Benjamin, who ruled for 40 years. After removing Saul, he made David their king. God testified concerning him, I have found David, son of Jesse, a man after my own heart. He will do everything I want him to do. From this man's descendants, God brought to Israel the Savior Jesus, as he promised. Before the coming of Jesus, John preached repentance and baptism to all the people of Israel. As John was completing his work, he said, Who do you suppose I am? I am not the one you are looking for, but there is one coming after me whose sandals I am not worthy to untie. Fellow children of Abraham and you God-fearing Gentiles, it is to us that this message of salvation has been sent. The people of Jerusalem and their rulers did not recognize Jesus, yet in condemning him they fulfilled the words of the prophets that are read every Sabbath. Though they found no proper ground for a death sentence, they asked Pilate to have him executed. When they had carried out all that was written about him, they took him down from the cross and laid him in a tomb. But God raised him from the dead, and for many days he was seen by those who had traveled with him from Galilee to Jerusalem. They are now his witnesses to our people. We tell you the good news. What God promised to our ancestors, he has fulfilled for us, their children, by raising up Jesus. As it is written in Second Psalm, you are my son, today I have become your father. God raised him from the dead so that he will never be subject to decay. As God has, has said, I will give you the holy and sure blessings promised to David. So it is also stated elsewhere, you will not let your holy ones see decay. Now when David had served God's purpose in his own generation, he fell asleep. He was buried with his ancestors and his body decayed. But the one whom God raised from the dead did not see decay. Therefore, my friends, I want you to know that through Jesus, the forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you. Through him, everyone who believes is set free from every sin, a justification you are not able to obtain under the law of Moses. Take care that what the prophets have said does not happen to you. Look, you scoffers, wonder and perish, for I am going to do something in your days that you would never believe, even if someone told you. 
Thank you very much. Marvellous. Good job. Good job there. So that's a long reading. The reason it's a long reading is because, of course, we have the details of Paul's sermon to the synagogue in Pisidian Antioch. Uh, I always used to think it was um, kind of interesting that I'd travel around America and I'd find English city names, but they would call it London, Texas, or Sydney, Ohio. And I used to think, I think people who go there will know the difference. Well, you may not have known the difference between Pisidian Antioch and Syrian Antioch because they were two great cities, but they were nevertheless given the same name. And Paul is here in what is today mainland Turkey in the world of the ancients called Asia Minor, a seat of great empires, the Lydian Empire, the the Hittite Empire, great moments in history that are recorded for us in the annals of time. And here in Antioch, this remarkable place that today, I'm fortunate to have visited the location, today is a sprawling ruin and archeological site with great aqueducts and city squares and buildings that have, even now in their ruination, a regal kind of nature about them. In this city, Paul proclaimed the good news. And when he proclaimed that good news, having lost one of his team members, most likely because of fear, John Mark, this young man who'd left with them on their first missionary journey and traveled with them through Cyprus, was now so concerned about the continuation of the, of the journey that he returned home to Jerusalem. And later on in the story, we'll see that Paul really doesn't find it possible to trust him in the next stage of his mission when he goes on a second missionary journey and uh, he and Barnabas separate on that, on that very basis. Probably it was because of fear. When you go to Perga, which is the entrance to this great region called Galatia, to which Paul will address his first letter in the New Testament. You, you enter Perga, which is this enormous and beautiful Roman city with a great hippodrome, the place where the horse races and gladiatorial displays would be seen by the, by the thronging population. If you stand on the on the scaling heights of this hippodrome and look towards the place where Paul and Barnabas journeyed. If you're a modern person and you've read Lord of the Rings, it looks like the land of Mordor. It's an amazingly intimidating sight. There are these shark tooth mountains that march across the horizon. And in those mountains, in the time of Paul, the Celts were running wild. Bishop Lightfoot, in his seminal commentary on Galatians in the 19th century, pointed out that the Celts had settled in this region as they had settled in other parts 
of what is now Europe, France, which was named after them Gaul or, or a, a similar kind of name in the mountains of the Pyrenees in Britain, being pushed to the margins of Wales and Scotland and Ireland. But here they had a fastness in the mountains of Galatia. And the reason it was called Galatia was because the Gaulish tribes, the Celtic tribes, lived there. Well, these tribes would not submit to Roman rule. And so, unlike just about every other region in the world, the Romans had subjugated the population and enslaved almost the entire, the entire number of them. About 90% of the population of Galatia was enslaved. Which is why when you read the letter to the Galatians, which maybe one day we'll have time to study together, you'll notice the emphasis on freedom, freedom from slavery over and over again being related by Paul to the recipients of his letter. But these people who, as many other people who have been subjugated by, by foreign and tyrannical rulers, threw off their shackles and went to live in the mountains. But they were a dangerous group of people. And if there were any travelers on those roads, ostensibly protected by Roman soldiers, they were at great risk. And it was probably because of this, this most dangerous place in the world, considered to be the place where, really, if you traveled, it was the riskiest place you could ever travel in, John Mark, the writer of Mark's gospel, decided to go home to mum. And I guess it's not surprising. Young man, somewhat intimidated by what it was that he'd heard and seen. And so fear and the story of someone's response to fear was perhaps in the background of what it was that Paul was thinking about when he preached this, his first sermon, to this new territory and to these new people and to this new location where a church would be planted along with other churches of the cities of this region that would later collectively be called Galatia or the church of the Galatians. Paul preaches, he gives his overview of scripture and then he finishes with these words Look, you scoffers, wonder and perish, for I'm going to do something in your days that you would never believe, even if someone told you. Why does he finish there? What is it about this congregation? What is it about this synagogue that causes him to finish with a warning about disregarding or disbelieving his message. You see, a scoffer is a person who thinks that they know what it is that's being spoken about and they know it better, or they think that what is being spoken about is not relevant to them. And so they disregard it or they disbelieve it. Now, religious people, surprisingly, have a bit of a tendency to do this. They have a bit of a tendency to think 
that what they're hearing week by week in the sermons is pretty much what they've heard before. Very often, religious people find themselves disregarding the challenge of a message or disbelieving the significance of a message because perhaps they've heard it before, at least they think they have. Perhaps they've failed to see the nuances that will help release them from the captivity that they still find themselves under. And Paul here, as he completes his sermon, says, be sure that you're not in the category of religious people like those in the Old Testament story who, though religious, chose to disregard or disbelieve the significance of this message. But of course, that's almost completely irrelevant for all of you guys. I'm sure that you're not in any of those categories. I'm sure that every Sunday you go home and you can remember every word that was spoken and you're able to identify the significance of every sentence. So what is it then that Paul attempted to do in completing his sermon in the way that he did? What was he, what was he trying to do? Well, Aaron has so helpfully introduced the theme to us. I, um, I lived in Arkansas uh, some years ago, Sally, three small children. Uh, we lived there and uh, we enjoyed our work in Indian Hills Baptist Church and the Episcopal Cathedral, which even now as you hear that, you say, that's something from the sublime to the ridiculous. Because absolutely that was the case. We function in the Southern Baptist Church and then we're called to assist the dean at the Episcopal Cathedral, probably the only evangelical Episcopal Cathedral at the time, and it happened to be next door to the governor's mansion. And so when I went to work in my little old green MG every morning, I would race around the roads and uh, I could almost wave to the Clintons in their house. I pulled up at the parking lot every day and thought nothing of it. I thought that my story was defined by the parameters of my everyday experience. Preaching on Sundays, preparing through the week, praying with different groups of people throughout those days. Until the pastor of the Baptist church that I was working at previously called me to say a friend of his who had had an authentic and well-attested ministry of prophecy had a prophecy for Bill Clinton now that he had been elected as president. And I said, okay, how's he gonna deliver that then? And he said, well, I thought you might be able to help me with that. You see, my little story was really insignificant to the much larger stories of Arkansas and America. The larger story of the Razorback basketball team winning 
the conference final that particular year was way more important than me being there every week in the cathedral. And the fact that as I pushed through the crowd, carrying my eldest daughter on my shoulders because she wanted to see what it was like at an inauguration, I stood next to Tom Cruise and Jack Nicholson. They were much shorter than me <laughs> and weren't able to see very much, but Becky on my shoulders, who was, I don't know, 10, 11, 9, 8, 10, <laughs> one of those numbers, she, she was able to see everything. She thought it was fantastic. She got the whole scene. So I said to my dear friend, I said, um, well, what do you think then? He said, well, he's got lots of friends in Little Rock. And um, one of them is a lady who I met at a soccer game. And I think she goes to the opening of um, the exhibitions at the art gallery. How about you turn up and introduce yourself and say, God's got a word for her friend. <laughs> so I said, sounds simple enough. And being, I don't know, 32 or something, I thought it sounded like a great fun. So I drove my little green MG to the art gallery, found the lady in question, introduced myself and said, God has a message for Bill. How do you think we should deliver it? And she said, how about I invite you around to my house with your wife and your friend, the pastor and his wife, and me and Bill come to the dinner as well. And I said, Okay, uh, will the Secret Service have any thoughts about that? Because this was between the election and the inauguration in Washington. She said, no, I don't think so. So sure enough, on the day that was assigned, I assumed that it wasn't ever going to happen, on the day that was assigned, there were all kinds of strange-looking men in very dark suits white shirts and black ties populating the streets where soon-to-be-inaugurated President Bill Clinton was walking down the street towards this home. And sure enough, we had dinner and exchanged pleasantries and talked about books that we were writing and had written. And it was a very pleasant evening. And then the prophet who has come with us went into another room and shared the word of the Lord with the future president of the United States. My little story was taken up into a much bigger story. And that's what Paul is doing when he preaches to the people of Pisidian Antioch. He says, I know that you get up every morning and you go to the market and you buy your bread. I know that every week you send your children to the synagogue school, that 
that every season you sweep the house and you, you change the, the clothes in your closet. I know that your life follows a cycle and a system that has been in place throughout your life and maybe for generations. And I know that you have been attentive to the reading of God's word week by week in the synagogue. But your small story is taken up into a much greater and more important story. It's God's story. And it's much bigger than yours. And there is a central character to the story. I mean, just imagine, you know, you were, you're watching a movie, you, you didn't quite catch the name of it, and it seems to be about the British establishment and various different people who have gadgets that seem to be able to do all kinds of amazing things in the art of espionage. And it's only afterwards that you realize that the whole story is about one person. He's called James Bond. Well, the same thing is true of what it is that Paul says to these people. He says, there is this great story. And it's a story into which your smaller story is gathered up. This is now your story because your small story is taken up in the larger story and that larger story is much more significant but that doesn't mean that you're insignificant. It means that you're more significant because your small story is part of the big story. And all of the themes and all of the all of the revelations that come to the people in the large story are not just their themes and revelations, they're your themes and revelations. And so the way in which God has been faithful in the big story is the way that you can predict that he'll be faithful in your story. Because God is nothing if he is not consistent, his character never changes. And the way that he interacts and operates in the larger story is precisely the way that he will interact with you and operate in your story. And so you can read this story and you can make it your own story. You can read this book and you can make it your book. You can read the narrative of these great, wonderful, heroic journeys through space and time and they become your heroic journey. They become your story. You are able to adopt all of this wondrous narrative for yourself. And the story, in the end, if you follow it to its conclusion, is about an individual called Jesus. And he's God's son. And he's the promised king whom God has anointed to bring his kingdom to this world. And that king was prophesied by the last of the great prophets, John. And he worked and lived among us and did such good things. But the people 
of the story somehow missed the main character. And though they believed the story was about them, they didn't understand that the story was actually about him. And so they pursued him to death, death on a cross. And by that death, Jesus completed the first volume of the story. Sally and I started watching Manifest, this thing on Netflix the other week, and um, we promptly stopped watching it. Not because it wasn't brilliant, we loved it. I had no idea what it was about. I mean, what is that? But it's a bit like that one lost, you know, where you're watching and you're thinking, I think I've got it. No, I don't have it. Well, we were, we were watching it, and then I checked to see whether it was going to be continued. And it's been cancelled. And it's like, I, don't, I can't do that. I can't, I can't give all of my emotional energy to the characters who I've come to like maybe even love, and then not find out what the story is. I really don't like these kind of postmodern narratives where it's all left to you to decide at the end. I don't want to do it. I paid the money for you to tell me what the story was. I don't want all this, you know, kind of postmodern rubbish. I want to have a proper story, and I want it to be redemptive, and I want the girl to get the guy, and I want the guy to get the girl, and I want it to all be wonderful sweetness and light at the end. That's what I want. And I'd like you to, to deliver that, please, and I'm paying you for it. But leaving me to do it at the end, I'm sorry, I'm not going to do it. So we stopped watching Manifest. Somebody's going to tell me after this thing. It all resolves. It's all fine. It's going to be okay. Okay, well, it's fine. You see, the thing is this. You can get to the end of the first volume and not actually get it. When Paul was writing to these people that he was preaching to right now, just really a few months later, he said this. It's fascinating, just listen carefully. Galatians chapter two, verse 19. For through the law, I died to the law so that I might live for God. I have been crucified with Christ and I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. The life I live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. I do not set aside the grace of God, for if righteousness could be gained through the law, Christ died for nothing. You see, what Paul came to share with the Galatians, with the people of Pisidian Antioch and all of the other cities as he planted churches in each of these locations, was that the good news 
was even better than anyone could imagine. The good news was this, that Jesus paid the penalty for the law that God justly shared with his people as the expectations of a holy God over a lost humanity. And the expectations were that we should live a good and holy life. And even though we were incapable of doing it, he set the standard by which our life should be run. And that, that standard is called the law of Moses. Some people think that that's the main theme of the story and so find themselves trapped in the continuous attempt to keep the law that God gave through his servant Moses. But the main character is Jesus and Jesus comes and lives a perfect life and dies a death in our place which is the penalty for not living up to the standard that God has established justly and rightly because he's the creator and he's allowed to set the standards. Jesus lived to that standard and then paid the penalty for us not living up to that standard and it changes everything. But it's only the first volume. Because the second volume begins when Jesus rises from the dead. And the second volume begins like this. If you believe that Jesus has fully identified with you to the extent that he's not only prepared to live the life that you should be living, but has, has given his life and, and has died the death that you should be dying, if you believe that Jesus has identified with us, with you to that extent, that he is the main character of the story, that he is the culmination of the narrative, that he is the explanation of all that unfolds in the ages of, of God's providence through the Old Testament, if you believe that Jesus has identified with you to that extent, then identify with him and take his identity upon you and live the risen life. Live the risen life. Move from the cross on an empty hill outside of the city and come to an empty grave where a savior was laid in his death, but rose as the first fruits of a new humanity. And if you will live in that second volume, 
identifying with Jesus, choosing to allow him to enter your life by his spirit, to give you the life that he has in the resurrection, pouring about upon you the power that raised him from the dead, then you begin to live the second volume. And not only does everything change for you, but because you have fully identified with Jesus, then the power that he has given you, the power that raised him from the dead, is now coursing through your veins and touching a broken and lost world. Now, you may have heard that before. But it's never more relevant than it is right now. Let me ask you, do you fear anything? Do you fear anything? Do you fear the Delta variant? I'm not saying, are you cautious about the necessities of being a good neighbor? I'm not saying that. I'm saying, are you afraid? Are you afraid of what happens in the political life of America? Are you afraid that the Middle East is running out of water? Are you afraid that the planet seems to be heating up? Are you afraid that there are fires raging in Greece and Turkey and all along the west coast of America? Are you afraid? If you are afraid, and listen carefully, if you are afraid, then the extent to which you are afraid is the extent to which you're living in the first volume and have not stepped into the second. Because the second volume has these words. Fear is to do with judgment. And there's no fear in love because perfect love casts out fear. And you say, but Mike, it just seems so impractical. Well, best disbelieve it or disregard it. Disbelieve it. Disregard it. Be those that Paul warned at the end of his sermon not to be like. It's great, isn't it, when we do these broad, sweeping narratives of Scripture and you get to hear about secret stories that I've never told anybody before in public. It's great, isn't it? But then we get to the end of the sermon and it's not so fun. Are you living in the first volume? Or have you started the second? Are you trapped in the first series and haven't begun the new series? Are you living in the unfolding narrative of the resurrection? Or are you trapped 
at a cross that reminds you again of judgment and fear. Which volume is it for you today? And you say, okay, so I I get the theory. What is it I need to do? What you need to do is you need to say today, by faith, I'm stepping into the new volume. By faith, you do these things. Paul makes it absolutely clear that it's only by faith. In other words, it's only by active trust in the word of God. That's what faith is, active trust in the word of God. Therefore, my brothers, I want you to know that through Jesus, the forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you. Through him who was raised from the dead, everyone who believes is justified from everything that they could not be justified from by the law of Moses. Take care that what the prophets have said does not happen to you. Listen to these words in the message translation of that same passage. God accomplishes in those who believe everything that the law of Moses could never make good on. But everyone who believes in this raised up Jesus is declared good and right and whole before God. Do you want me to read that again? It's pretty awesome, isn't it? Don't you love the message version? God accomplishes in those who believe everything that the law of Moses could never make good on. But everyone who believes in this raised up Jesus is declared good and right and whole before God. This is the day of salvation. This is the day when those of you who have lived a life of faith in the first volume need to start living by faith in the second volume. And the way you do it is exactly the way you did it the first time. Paul says this, our faith needs to be from faith to faith. And so we do it exactly the same way. We have faith that what God says is true. You have been raised to new life in Christ. And you're no longer held by the terms of the old life. And if today you want that, you've been saved a long time. Maybe the whole of your life as long as you can remember. But today you want to say, do you know what? I actually want to start putting this into practice so that I'm no longer gripped by fear of any kind. Fear about what happens to my children, my spouse, my friends, my family. I want to be free from fear. Because fear is to do with punishment and punishment is the story of the first volume that has been now settled in the person of Christ. I want to live the second volume 
Because perfect love, that that I see displayed in the culmination of the first volume in the person of Jesus, perfect love casts out fear. Does anyone believe that? And if this is the day for you to take what was put in pencil and settle it in ink, then come on right now. Let's go. Just come now. The band are going to come whilst you come. Don't disregard or disbelieve. Can anyone hear mountains moving? I think I can. Because you only need faith as a mustard seed to move the mountains. The mountains of fear, they're moving today. Anyone else's mountain needs to move? It's hard to have faith, isn't it, sometimes? As the band plays, you come and join these friends here who the prayer team will be recruiting members of the congregation to pray with. And as you pray, you'll simply be praying the scriptures. Perfect love casts out fear. Perfect love, the love of Jesus, casts out fear. Lord, we thank you that the story is a multifaceted, wonderful thing. And we thank you, Lord, that the story is all about Jesus, that he is the Alpha and the Omega, that he's the beginning and the end, that he's the main character of the first volume, and he's the principal character of the second. Lord, may you be seen in us so that you're the main character of our life that we're taken up into the big story again. The story of you, Lord Jesus, as we prepare for your return, as we look for you in glory, as we ask you to send your kingdom daily, Lord God, we pray that you would be center stage and in the spotlight. And may that be true in our life and in the life of all those who name you as Lord. Because we pray, Jesus, in your name and all God's people say, Amen.